Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is a podcast by Global Conservation Corps dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. Our guest today is Michaeli Sofisti, a geologist by training, a former executive for luxury brands such as Ferrari, Swatch, and Gucci. Michele also is a board member of Global Conservation Corps and plays a critical role in helping the GCC team understand the connection between biodiversity, climate change, and human health and prosperity. Michele also is the author of two beautiful books that use photography to convey the splendor, the power, and the magnificence of nature. In the introduction to one of those books, he wrote something so beautiful that I want to share it. I have lived every click of the shutter. I remembered the precise moment I took each photo, no matter how many years ago it may have been. I recall exactly what it was that piqued my curiosity in the first place. If I close my eyes, I can still feel the atmosphere, smell the air around me. On that note, Michele, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thank you, thank you, Bob. Thank you for the introduction and uh, uh, honor to be with you and discussing uh, about the nature and uh, what we can do to preserve and uh, to make a better place for everybody, also for the future generations. Well, Michele, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to meet with you and work with you as part of Global Conservation Corps. And, and I've, I've always been struck by your, the way you've been able to combine your incredibly impressive career with a passion for protecting and preserving nature. Can you just share a little bit of your background and, and what brought you to that, that ability to combine your career with your passion for nature? I, um, with pleasure, in the, in the sense that um, I recall a moment which is uh, this moment that's so far back and uh, I was a child and I was uh, coming back uh, at home. I was born in an Alp village in the 50s and um, it was nothing. Today is a beautiful ski resort. At the time, it was a really just a mountain village on the Alps. And every time I went out with my parents to do some walking, I was very little, little child. I came back with the rocks in my, my pockets to the point that my mother was crazy about it. And I ended up at the age of, I don't know, 10, 12. I had hundreds of rocks under my bed and keeping them because I just loved them. And this is, I kind of recall my first connection with the nature. And I tried to keep that through my studies, geology, I did geology for passion, not because I was looking for a career in, in geology. And uh, in fact, uh, after seven years of working as a geologist uh, in uh, different European countries, I got an opportunity to move into a completely different world. Uh, and uh, I moved in uh, the, the business side of um, the luxury industry, working first for Ferrari for seven years, and then uh, joining uh, the Swatch group uh, with the brands Omega and, uh, and Swatch and then and then so on. And uh, this has given me um, incredible richness in meeting people, uh, event, uh, especially with Omega. I had the chance to meet personally and do some events with the astronauts, the Apollo astronauts. I, I can say I, I was a kind of a friend of Gene Cernan 
the last man on the moon, an incredible personality. Was, uh, somebody that uh, just listening to him was like uh, inspiring. And he was talking about the planet, about the nature, about the beauty of the planet. All the way long, uh, I was... Uh, inspired and connected uh, to do something with the nature in my position as a CEO in the different uh, operations. Uh, every time I could, I, I tried to do something, uh, an event or a project or something to protect the oceans, uh, the forest or, or something. And now finally, also for a question of age, I would say, I love to put, uh, let's say, at service uh, as much as I can uh, um, to organizations like Global Conservation Corps the network I have created around the world and uh, maybe some experience and uh, uh, people that I know that could be even better than me, of, of course, uh, to, to push and help uh, to protect the nature. In all these magnificent journeys you've taken, Michele, you know, you've traveled the world um, and your books do such a wonderful job in bringing the, the reader of the book along with you in that journey. Tell us about that that one photo that stands out, the one that's most special to you, the one that when you say that you've lived every click of the shutter, it's that photo that brings back the best memories for you. Um, actually, it's a specific, a specific moment. Uh, 20 years ago, I did uh, by myself a track in the Combo Park in Nepal going from uh, Kathmandu, flying to Lukla, and then from Lukla, walking for about 10 days towards the Everest base camp. It was uh, just me and uh, an Nepalese uh, younger guide. And uh, it was just an incredible experience, so thousands of photos. But the one is particularly strong to my memory because uh, the 29th of September of that year, the year 2000, we were walking to reach a village called uh, Timpoche. And we couldn't see anything. The fog was so, so thick that we were walking for hours in a so thick fog that I could barely see him in front of me. We arrived in the village. He knew the, the road because you couldn't see the road, even not the houses. Finally, six o'clock, we went to bed after a, a rice dinner. And, and I, I had no idea where I was. I just knew it was a village with a very famous temple and so on. And then at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, I was hearing uh, some um, sounds coming down from the different uh, areas of the mountains around. So I woke up, I, I went out, and that was uh, this incredible memory that is, uh, is the picture in my brain. Basically, uh, you have a Buddhist monk, uh, red uh, dressed with the corn that they were uh, playing, coming down to go to the temple, but far away, at the end of the valley, it was a Mount Everest with the first sun on the summit. I was even now. I have a, how you call it, bumps. Is <laughs> um, something in terms of uh, emotion that was uh, I, I couldn't ask uh, anything better, and it was uh, my birthday, so it was a really very very special day and. Uh, I remained there speechless for probably half an hour, just enjoying the sounds. Wow. <laughs> I, have, uh, I have goosebumps too, Michele. That's, uh, I mean, you transported me to the Himalayas. I, I can see it in my mind as well. So thank you for that. And maybe to take this one step further, I mean, you and I have had a lot of conversations in our time together at GCC about the importance of biodiversity. And the fact of the matter is that 
without biodiversity, none of what you've photographed, be it, you know, the Mount Everest, be it these beautiful landscapes, be it even people would be possible. I mean, biodiversity is what underpins all of us. And can you educate us a bit on what biodiversity is and why it is so important that we frankly do more to ensure we have greater, not less than biodiversity? But I think that there is a sentence that I've uh, read uh, in a specific book uh, times ago, which uh, I think will recap the best way, what is biodiversity? Biodiversity is a, the infrastructure that supports all life on Earth, which means everything is there and it's called uh, biodiversity because uh, we are touching the, the world of trees and forestry, the animals, the, the river, water, air, everything. And um, the, the, the problem today is that uh, I think there is not enough uh, uh, knowledge, shared knowledge uh, among uh, everybody to understand that, that this is our bones. We are basically uh, breaking our bones ourselves. And uh, this is so crazy. But unfortunately, this is happening in the history of uh, humankind from Homo sapiens and even before many, many times, and uh, that is the, the, the sad part. Is we have not learned from the past how to protect the biodiversity, to better live and, and better share the, the, live on the, on the life on the, on the planet. So biodiversity is not only wildlife, it's everything. It's not only forest, it's also oceans and the, the marine lives. And we need to protect that because otherwise there are no solutions. And uh, it's very important now, the One uh, Planet Summit that um, was held uh, in January in Paris, um, where 50 countries have signed an agreement to protect 30% of land and ocean by 2030. It's not enough, but it's a, a very important step to achieve because if we go over 2030 and we have not protected biodiversity, which has a direct impact into climate change and the mitigation of climate change will be definitely too late. So we have a 10 years, 10 years where we need really to, to, to make the change. And uh, unfortunately, I must say, talking with uh, the private sector, talking with uh, also important organization and so on, we tend to take time. We tend to take time as we have time, but we have no time. We, we are already super late. At the same time, I, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning of the, of, uh, the answer is about the, the history that we have not learned. There are a lot of civilization, and uh, I suggest everybody to read the books of Professor Jared Diamond. Um, there are civilizations which have collapsed because uh, the, the people at the time, they have basically made a, a wild deforestation. Cutting trees is uh, the first step to go to self-destruction in a sense. And um, the second one, of course, uh, was uh, killing all the animals. We have killed, uh, in a few thousand years, we have killed all the big mammals that, that they were in North America, also in Europe. And uh, so it's, I don't know how to say, but it's like, uh, the, the track record of, uh, of uh, humanity in, in the planet has, um, has a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, steps which have not been the smartest one. But now we have everything to, to do better. We have the technology, we have the knowledge, we, 
since uh, the Apollo mission, uh, we, we know uh, about our planet from outside our planet. And, um, and that is so important. And um, it's, not, it's not by chance that every time there is a, some astronauts uh, in, the, in the International Space Station, the message they send is uh, we, we, we see our planet from uh, uh, above and it's uh, so beautiful, it's so important to protect and uh, they could tell us about the wildfires on the west coast in America or in Australia last year and uh, it's so sad. So we need really, we need to act and protect biodiversity. Yeah, I think you, you bring us to what I believe is the greatest tragedy of humanity. I mean, it's far greater than all the injustices of the world. It's, I think, far greater than some of the things you alluded to of, you know, cutting down trees, not respecting nature. And that, that tragedy is that we're valuing our present self over our future self. And this is, you know, something I wrote a lot about in my book, which is because we are valuing our future, our future selves less than our present selves. We are just like the civilizations that collapsed. We're cutting down all the trees. We're killing all the animals. We're polluting the rivers, so on and so forth. We don't recognize the importance. We're unwilling to take the steps to recognize the importance that we're all stewards of this planet, right? And it's, it's really our job in that sense yeah. to leave the planet a little better for our kids and our grandkids rather than just living in this moment. And until we change that dynamic, I don't see how we really start to, you know, tackle some of the challenges you just outlined in terms of temperature increases, climate change, so on and so forth. Uh, it's so important what you say, Bob, uh, really basically recap everything about the, the issues. There are two issues today, biodiversity losses and the climate change mitigation. If uh, we can mitigate both we can solve a lot of social problem, migration, uh, famine, uh, water scarcity. So many things will go better, but uh, we need to act. We need to do things. Yeah, and it's it's almost like we're we're treating nature as something that we can just continually take from, or we're treating Mother Earth as something we can just take from and take from and take from, and instead is treating it as an asset like we would the money in our checking accounts or the value of our, our houses or the, our cars. I mean, nature is an asset that feeds into the economy at every level. And until we start assigning a value to that, we're never fully going to respect or appreciate it and address it in a way to ensure that that asset is able to sustain itself over time. Absolutely. The impact on economy is, uh, is just uh, huge. Only now, let, let's say a few, few last years, but uh, no, not many. There are uh, also the financial world moving into sustainability. Uh, there are uh, companies uh, thinking of a circular economy and so on. So that, that is absolutely well expressed in your book. Uh, that is a, really a master reading. But um, to me, uh, and this is also the fight I have almost every day, we, go, we are too slow. We are still too slow. I contact the private sector. To me, the change can come from the private sector. I contact a lot of brands, the top of brands, international brands uh, and corporations. And I'm not saying in a negative way, but uh, everyone has the good excuse not to do something uh, because they are busy doing something else or because uh, this and that. Uh, this is part of the problem is that uh, there are... Uh, 
there is a lot of money invested in sustainability and eventually protecting the natural wildlife conservation and so on, but it goes in too many streams. So the final results is not really visible because uh, it's too spread out. While in this moment, for the next 10 years, we, are, we should really just focus on those two issues, biodiversity and uh, climate change. Those are the two uh, super major issues. Even the COVID pandemic that uh, we are living today comes because of deforestation, because of bad interaction with wildlife. And uh, this is just the last one of 14 that came out from the year 2000. In 20 years, we had 14 threat of pandemic. And the, 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 the one which exploded has been COVID. But the, what is the next one? So we need really to, 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 to become a little bit smarter, I would say. How do we become smarter and, as you said, acting with much greater speed? I mean, there's no greater consequence to what we've been doing to ourselves than what you just said. 14 pandemics since the turn of the century. Like, if that's not a wake-up call, what is? But yet, it still doesn't feel like, to your point, things are moving fast enough, particularly in the private sector, that, by its very nature, is the one consuming a lot of Earth's resources. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I see for, for me the private sector can be the solution. Why that? Because and again, I I I lived in the private sector for many years, and I see two elements. The first one is that if the private sector, so-called brands, commercial brands, uh, they came really into the play as they are doing, but they are doing just. Uh, they do today, not tomorrow. They, they do a little bit. It's a kind of, sometimes it's kind of a greenwash. Instead, they, they should come in, invest, and stay there. Because also, it's very interesting from a commercial point of view for them, targeting the, the younger generation. But my point, where they can be really a big uh, game changer, first is because uh, th there is a lot of money there that can be invested, and a lot of money that can be invested in communication. And uh, uh, communication is, 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 is everything. If people know better what is the situation, if uh, we make clear that science tells in the, the story and gives some solutions, then probably we can have uh, some positive effect. But if the private sector stays away, doesn't invest in communication as they should, and they keep investing millions of dollars just to... Uh, to sell a specific product, a new product. And again, I, I did that for, for living. So I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, crashing on uh, my, my plate. I'm just saying that a part, just part of that money should be invested in causes to protect the biodiversity, to protect, uh, uh, to mitigate the, 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 the climate change. And that can be really, really huge because companies, Private sector companies, they know how to convince people about things because uh, we, we, we all, we all are consumers and we buy because uh, sometimes we get uh, brainwashed and uh, uh, I mean, whatever item, I don't, I don't want to mention items specifically, but just a fraction of this investment, if it can go to the causes that we are talking, I think that we could see really a major change. Also because of the political world, uh, and I don't want to, to touch a sensitive uh, issue here, but uh, they, they, we need them because they are the so-called lawmakers and we need laws, no, laws that can protect the natural, laws that can improve the situation where it is uh, 
compromised. But um, most of them, they, they, they cannot do things because they are elected for certain things, because they don't believe, because and we have, unfortunately, some major cases in the major countries. Uh, some of the leaders are really people that, you know, they, they maybe think the, the earth is flat. So with these kind of leaders, where we go? Nowhere. So um, that, that's why... Uh, uh, a shared the better knowledge about the issues and the solutions can also bring the people to vote for the right people to have better laws and really protect the nature. Now, 50 countries have signed uh, what I was mentioning before uh, to protect the 30% of their land and oceans by 2030. That's fantastic. Hope that they will push the private sector in their countries to invest uh, seriously and uh, with a certain continuity into those causes. But I have, to, I have to ask you this though, because your connection between the public and the private sector made me think of this. So you have, for example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, right? 17 goals created by policymakers from around the world designed to lift what is probably now approaching um, 800 million people around the world living in extreme poverty, which means they live on less than a dollar and 40 cents a day out of poverty. And I think all of us listening to this would fully agree, um, absolutely agree that no one under any circumstances should be consigned to a life in extreme poverty. And that everyone who is in extreme poverty absolutely has, should have the opportunity and the right to live a better, healthier, more prosperous life. But we have these policymakers that have set some admittedly ambitious goals that are, that are important goals. I absolutely support those goals. But if these people start getting on a track of greater prosperity, that's going to place more demands on nature. And, and I, I do worry about the, the consequences of solving some very, very real human needs with the realities that we're not doing a great job protecting our resources, ensuring biodiversity, and so on and so forth. How do you how do you find that balance? No, I, unfortunately, I fully agree with you in the sense that uh, we need to find uh, that uh, that balance, and uh, we cannot uh, keep uh, such an amount of uh, people and population uh, in in poverty. Uh, that's uh, not not only is not ethic, but is uh, really insane. Also, because uh, we have uh, we have the, again we have the solution. We have the solution for every single problem. We ju just needed to, to apply those. On the 70 point of the United Nations, of course, I agree one by one, but uh, it's also true that uh, when you put uh, a target like eradicating poverty within 10 years, how is possible? So I think that uh, probably one element of those 17 points, which is a little bit uh, maybe weak, is that uh, some of the points are really impossible to achieve. And uh, as everybody knows in business, when you set... Uh, budget targets which are impossible, then they, they, they basically the team will not follow up, so to say. While um, if you set up some goals which are absolutely reachable and understandable and clear, I think that is easier for everybody to follow and, and jump into them. Um, said that, I, I think again that uh, we need the leaders that can balance and make a more uh, equality uh, around the world is absolutely insane that uh, uh, wealth is concentrated and the poverty is also so spread uh, 
uh, out everywhere. From the other side, yes, it's true. We don't live uh, in, in, a, in a period of uh, terrible wars or other situations, but uh, still we are not uh, moving in the right direction. We are moving in a direction that is really, I would say, a blind direction. And Bob, you know what, uh, what is astonishing me all the time? I was reading the life of Alexander von Humboldt. Alexander von Humboldt, has been basically the, the, the mentor and the, the inspiration for Charles Darwin and many others. And Alexander von Humboldt, in his uh, travel around the world, he passed away at a very late age. Basically, he was already talking about the protection of biodiversity, climate change. And we are talking in the middle of 1700. And that was what, like three, 400 years ago, right? That he was talking about that? 1700. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 1700. Yeah. And, and he was uh, one of the first, but not the last. There are also in the United States, there are incredible scientists and, uh, and the natural, naturalists that came uh, inspired by him, inspired by Charles Darwin, so many. And, and uh, so many people, they were already hundreds of years ago said that uh, we need to pay attention, we need to do this and that. Instead of what we do, boom, we, we keep going uh, business as usual. It's... it's I don't know. It's just insane, I think. But uh, we need to find the balance. So we need to, to follow those uh, those uh, United Nations rules and, uh, and really find uh, find the, the right balance. But that's why I'm insisting about the private sector, because uh, the private sector moves independently, uh, while the politicians they they uh, we know how they move, and uh, we know also that sometimes even with good intentions. And we had a few examples, rare, but few. Um, uh, they are basically not in the condition to do what they would love to do in, in the right way. So the private sector moves independently, has the money, and should put uh, really the money, part of the money. Now, not everything, of course. A business uh, must uh, keep going, but uh, they should really help in, uh, in, uh, in some causes uh, that are very, very important to protect biodiversity and mitigate climate change. And uh, one, one, one thing more, if you allow me, is uh, I, I, I learned uh, uh, by a very important Italian scientist, the Professor Telmo Pievani. Uh, is professor of uh, uh, biology evolutionistic in uh, Padua University. And uh, he made a study, uh, super important, which is uh, for the first time proving that large biodiversity, it goes together with cultural diversity. So if uh, we keep uh, cultural diversity means um, lingu languages, local communities, um, even gastronomy, whatever, can be put under the term of a cultural. And uh, that is so important because at the same time that we are killing the biodiversity, we are also killing the, the, the cultural diversity in many, many countries. We have, uh, we have um, an invasive way of doing, uh, not only in the Amazonas, but uh, in many, many other uh, um, areas of the world. And the native population, it is proven by science that they protect the environment much better than what we can do when we come in and basically destroy instead of finding the way to live together. So that, that, that study is extremely important because I put together, for, I think for the first time, biodiversity, mitigation of climate change, and culture, cultural diversity. 
And I recall uh, about 15 years ago, I was, um, uh, I was uh, with the National Geographic Society and uh, did a, a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, uh, project called the Whole Roads Film Festival. It was basically a film festival of uh, disappearing cultures. So it was uh, like a, a short film, videos, photography, or um, literature from uh, uh, native population coming from all over the world. And it was unbelievable. And uh, today also the, the extinction rate of uh, local culture, I mean, it's, it's, we are talking about uh, thousands of languages and traditions, the song, music, uh, whatever, that goes disappear every year. And at the end, we, we end up in a monoculture, mono which is not really the reason why uh, Homo is called the sapiens, <laughs> so to say. And we'll, we'll have links to those studies in the, the GC, on the GCC website um, with this podcast so that if people listening to the podcast want to learn more, uh, they certainly can read more of those, those really important studies. So, Michele, to fast forward 20 years now, 20 years in the future, um, despite all the challenges that we have talked about, um, do you see humans and nature finding themselves existing in balance where nature is treated as, a, as an asset and we see biodiversity increasing and flourishing rather than being under constant threat as it is today? I, I would love to be uh, very positive and I hope that uh, the future will show that uh, especially the, the younger generation uh, have started really acting in a maybe a smarter way that uh, some other generation have done, also my generation, so to say. Uh, but I don't know, 20 years seems uh, long for uh, human timing, but in geological timing is, is like nothing, it's like... Um, is nothing basically so and this is also part of the problem because if we come over the famous degrees in climate change and if we kill and we bring it to extinction species to to come back it will take probably millions of years and this is also the funny story because we don't we don't understand in a certain way that we are not going to kill the planet the planet that was there before us much longer, much longer. We are there since the famous um, comparison of a year is when the human comes is uh, the 31st of December at uh, midnight minus uh, 30 seconds, something like that. So there's a, a long time before uh, Homo sapiens and it will be long, long time after that if uh, we disappear. So the problem is not the planet, the problem is the living the living, what we leave to the future generation. And uh, the geological period that, that we are uh, living seems basically more or less uh, the appearance uh, of uh, the humanity with uh, some um, period of uh, troubles uh, that have brought also, by the way, uh, important historical uh, situation like the disappearing of the Roman Empire, the troubles of the, uh, during the early emperor in Syria and uh, Mesopotamia and all this. This was also linked to some uh, climate change issues. So finally, I hope to be positive. I would like to be positive. Why? Because a new generation 
younger generation and because we have the solution. If it was like, uh, okay, zero solution, what we can do? No, we have the solution, we have the science, we have technology, we have everything. Uh, and uh, the best uh, solution for uh, climate change is the, the tree. The tree is the best invention to keep um, the CO2 under control and uh, the biodiversity flourishing instead of uh, disappearing. But uh, no, planting trees at the end of the day, um, in, a, in an intelligent way, of course, uh, could be really some, some of the solution better than, uh, you know, some technological advanced uh, crazinesses like uh, increasing uh, algae in, in the oceans or uh, creating uh, uh, something in the atmosphere and so on. I think... Uh, the, the, the nature has a, a self-balance, which is very important to respect. And uh, trees, local trees, they, they have, um, they have a, an important value also for the wildlife. They have an important value for the atmosphere, the, the rain, the, the water. Uh, without water, we have nothing. And if there are no trees, there is no water. Uh, the Amazons is a is, a, is a, an atmosphere by itself. They created their own clouds, their own rains. So if we cut down the Amazons at the, at the rate that we are doing since many, many years now, also because of crazy leaders uh, as today, I mean, there will be no, no rain. It will be transforming a savanna. It will be transforming a desert. And that that's, gives no advantage to anybody even not for the people with the livestock. I would even say it's easier. There's even a step that we can all take that's easier than planting a tree. And this is something that our colleague Kate Vanelli and I have spoken about. Um, and, and Kate's the, the program director at Global Conservation Corps, which is if you can't do anything else, just put a plant in a pot and keep it in your house because that alone will create a little ecosystem. Absolutely. And, and that actually helps foster biodiversity. So I would say 100% agree, there are so many benefits to planting trees, but just to take it down to the absolute easiest thing that all of us as individuals can do, put a pot, put a plant in a pot and, and just let, let the insects, let nature create a little ecosystem right there. You will do a lot of good. Uh, absolutely, I fully, I fully agree. And then, uh, if, if you would like to to know, but again, I don't want to be uh, controversial, and, and it's not my intention. But uh, what uh, a citizen can do, especially if he has the age to vote, is to vote to the right people. We need really to vote out uh, people that they, they don't believe in science. They they are no leaders. They have no interest in the really. Uh, looking at the future of uh, the living on the planet. So the, the vote is a very where, where it's possible, but I would say most of the country now, uh, I think is a, is a very, very important uh, weapon that we can use. Uh, and uh, having uh, people uh, um, with, uh, I would say, with intelligence and, uh, and knowledge uh, to lead other people, uh, that's can really make a faster, faster difference. What elected leaders or what communities or countries do you look at as, as really living both personally, but in the policies that they create kind of this vision of a more sustainable, responsible world, able to live within its means? I mean, who, who should we be modeling when we look to 
encouraging other elected officials to act like? Um, it's difficult for me to answer your question. I think that uh, there are different sensitivity also in the population. I live now since 26 years in Switzerland. What I discovered here in Switzerland, apart of that, is a country of lakes, mountains, and vineyards, and uh, basically I'm fully immersed in uh, nature. Um, but uh, it's the people. The people, whatever age, they go into the nature. I, I was absolutely su- surprised when I, the first year I was here because uh, I saw very aged people, couples or group of friends, but very aged, uh, let's say 80 years old or something like that, taking the train and going uh, up for a small trekking for the day or for a few days. And um, that was for me a really a, a, an incredible, uh, incredible experience because I said, wow, they basically, they have lived their entire life uh, interacting with the nature. So people like that will try to protect the nature. They will not, uh, let's say, accept to uh, cut the trees uh, in a stupid way or kill animals and it happens. But uh, I would say the mentality of the people can help in uh, judging also the, the the country. I see also that the northern country here in Europe, they have a particular sensitivity um, and many other. Australia, I, I have a part of my family is in Australia. And um, as everybody knows, Australia has some of the most uh, um, harmful <laughs> wildlife from serpents to, to, to other stuff. And the way the Australians, they live with their own nature, even though it's sometimes dangerous, I was like uh, speechless. I mean, unbelievable. My cousin had a python in his garden. I said, are you crazy? He says, no, but he lives there. He's not a domesticated python. He comes here and is there and stay there. Probably in some other countries over here in Europe, they would call uh, you know, the, the fire guards <laughs> to get him uh, out and kill. It's like the, the, the craziness we live now in, in Europe, like all Europe. I talk about my country in Italy. We have, I don't know, I think I estimated 2,000 wolves and probably less than 100 bears. And time to time, but very rarely, they interact in a, of course, a normal animal way with some livestock and the whole country is in alarm. We are attacked by wolves. So crazy. I mean, wolves, livestock, there is a balance and the animals, nature, find his own balance. But instead of protecting, we go and kill the, the, the poor wolves or the bears or whatever it is. And that way of thinking is unfortunately in many countries. And so we, we, need, we need probably to make an evolution in that kind of of thinking, so I, I I cannot mention a specific country. I can mention few uh, few countries as I did um, where uh, I, I felt that people have a special uh, special relationship with the natural. They 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 are uh, immersed in 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 the natural their entire life. Yeah, I think here in the United States, the city that's most interesting to me is Los Angeles. It is. Um, for any number of reasons, be it, you know, truly being on the front lines of climate change, dealing with, you know, pervasive socioeconomic injustice to its upcoming hosting of the Olympic Games. It is 
it is essentially created a citywide effort at every level of city government to embed sustainability into the design of the city, the rehabilitation, the updates of the infrastructure. My hope is that Los Angeles in particular uh, serves as a, a model that other cities, other communities can, can soon follow. Because if it, if it meets its ambitions, it, it will be quite impressive as to what LA is able to do. Very, very good point. Michele, I have to just ask you one last question before we go. And, and I know that we've been, you know, this conversation at times has been very focused on the, the challenges that we face and the looming consequences of, of our actions. You know, I know you and I still believe there's a lot of reason for hope. And you'd mentioned that, you know, the, the future generations uh, give you hope. But I would just ask, you know, what's in the face of all of this? Like, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning to make such an impressive commitment to saving, protecting, preserving nature for future generations? There's got to be something that gives you hope and drives you to do that. Well, and I'd love to hear what that is. Uh, I, I was. I am a passionate person, and uh, I'm passionate about nature. And uh, I always been, as I said at the beginning of our conversation. But I must add something uh, which is um, related to the younger generation. Uh, why I joined uh, Global Conservation Corps. Global Conservation Corps has been created by a young man. He was when he created the Global Conservation Club, maybe 25. And then I, I it's Matt, Matt Lindenberg, who, of course, you, you know well. And uh, I was impressed. I was impressed. I was impressed because as a young man, he was dedicated. And Kate is another example and some others also in, also in other organizations, of course. I was impressed because a young man of his age had many, many other opportunities to, to, uh, to design the, the path for his career, but he decided to work to conserve wildlife, to, to help local communities. And that's why now Global Conservation Corps' main project is education. So that's why I mean uh, um, younger generation. These kind of people can really make the difference can probably with energy, with passion, with knowledge, they can really, they can really do it. And they can really uh, make, a, make a solution possible for uh, the different issues. So that's why, that's why I'm positive. I, let's say I combine my own, uh, I would say, genetic passion <laughs> with, uh, with uh, some examples that are coming from outside, uh, like uh, the one uh, Matt gave me uh, when I met uh, him a few years ago. That's a great way to end this conversation, Michele. This was really, really an interesting conversation. And so thank you for your time. Thank you for all your, your insights and sharing those with us. And like I said, uh, we'll have links to some of the studies that Michele uh, mentioned in this conversation on the website by Michele's podcast. So if you want to learn more, you can certainly click on those. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Yeah.